Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we're speaking with John Temin. John is the Africa Director at Freedom House, and from 2014 to 2017, he was a senior Africa aide in the U.S. State Department. The U.S. was South Sudan's most important backer and ally at Independence. After leaving office, Temin published a report for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, looking at where the U.S. went wrong on South Sudan as it struggled to bring the country back to peace. With the new U.S. administration about to take power, today Temin discusses what lessons Washington should have learned from its South Sudan experience and what approach President Biden might take towards the young country. John, thanks for coming on our podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Alan. So we've been talking about this for years in, in different capacities, about a decade on and off, I, I think. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we can bring this conversation a bit wider and revisit some of the, the work you've done on it. So South Sudan, as our listeners know, fell into civil war uh, back in 2013. And in many ways now, of course, the U.S. has somewhat disengaged under the Trump administration, at least compared to before. So remind our listeners, how did the Obama administration view South Sudan before its collapse, before the civil war. Um, it was seen as one of its foreign policy successes. Um, wouldn't you say that's correct? Absolutely. I think coming into office, South Sudan was one of the highest priorities within Africa for the Obama administration. And of course, at that time, it wasn't South Sudan, it was the United Sudan. And the comprehensive peace agreement was in place and it had this time frame in place that led to the uh, the vote on whether South Sudan became independent. And I think uh, everybody who came into the Obama administration who focused on this general set of issues in this part of the world knew that this was going to be a huge priority for them in those first few years. So then how do you think the Obama administration saw South Sudan heading towards its eventual civil war? In many ways, it appeared blindsided, I think, like, like a lot of observers. I think it's hard to make a sweeping judgment about the administration as a whole. I think there were some people who were paying very close attention, who saw a lot of the fissures within the SPLM and were quite concerned about that. But I think the larger bureaucratic machinery didn't necessarily respond to that. And the sort of the blinking red lights that perhaps could have been there weren't necessarily there because there was such a focus on getting to the referendum and making that a smooth process, which in itself it was, and that was a, a success and a crisis avoided. Uh, the problem was that there were a lot more crises on the horizon that didn't get as much attention, and naturally uh, there was a bit of a move in focus away from South Sudan once that major development, the referendum and secession, had already happened. There's been some levels of criticism that, you know, when the crisis did break out in 2013 and violence broke out in Juba and spreading, that, that actually at that point, the Obama administration had had lost connection to the current regime to such a degree that it actually took the U.S. some time to to get in touch with President Kiir to really respond. Uh, do you think do you think that was just sort of a natural gravitation away or, or spoke to just the fact that priorities uh, landed elsewhere? I think part of it is that so much of the basis of the relationship between the U.S. and South Sudan's leaders around that time was based on the referendum and independence, and that took up so much of the dialogue. And certainly when the South Sudanese were talking to the U.S., that's all they were talking about is how do we get there, how do we secure this? Um, and so once those things were in the rearview mirror, uh, I think both sides were probably a little bit less responsive to each other and paying a little bit less attention to each other. 
Uh, and then when things really did move into a crisis into 2013, yeah, it was hard to sort of rekindle some of those lines of communication. Um, and it was hard to return to the intensity of that relationship that had existed a few years earlier in the run up to the referendum. And we'll talk about some of those those bigger issues and maybe some of those bigger blind spots later. So I want to I want to sort of move forward to the to the war and talk about, you know, what went wrong and also what what some lessons might be learned looking back and then looking forward. So for people who who don't recall or weren't paying as close attention back then, it might surprise people to remember now, but since the US, you know, the US now has turned so hostile to Juba, but early on in the crisis, right after the Civil War started, the US actually responded uh, somewhat in protective measures to Kiir. They weren't critical of the Ugandan army stepping in to to protect Juba and fight uh, the rebellion. They didn't push for an arms embargo at the United Nations at a time when South Sudan, you know, still needed to purchase the ability to to attack with helicopters from the air, which they later did. And, and this and all of this, despite you know that the the most common narrative of how the war started is that it was, you know, Kier's forces that really launched uh, ethnic massacres in the capital Juba to, to start all of this. So can you can you explain? what the early U.S. response to the war looked like from Washington's perspective, which in hindsight looks somewhat odd, I think, especially with how things have have gone after the fact? Yes, and I agree with a lot of the analysis that you just put forward. In South Sudan and in many other places, the first instinct in U.S. policymaking is to seek stability um, and to seek an end to the fighting. And that's in many ways a very understandable first principle. Uh, And so when you think about the UPDF intervention, the Uganda People's Defense Force, uh, that can explain part of why the U.S. was supportive at the time, because they came into Juba and they pacified things to a certain degree, uh, and that was deeply appreciated. Um, There was a great level of concern in particular there about the safety of diplomats, including U.S. diplomats, and so in that way the Ugandan intervention was helpful. And we have to keep in mind that this is in a context of a few years after the tragedies in Benghazi, Libya, where U.S. diplomats were killed. And so that was a major concern. Um, But you're right that over time, there was a whole series of actions by the U.S. which really showed uh, a bias, I think, towards President Kiir uh, and in some ways uh, reinforced his position and probably emboldened Uh, the aggressions under his watch. Um, And I don't think that there was ever really a conscious U.S. decision to do that. I think that was the product of a series of decisions. Uh, But I think that series of decisions led to a pretty distinct message that was received by President Kiir and some of his allies. Uh, It's interesting in retrospect, because of course, the mood in Juba shifted uh, over the course of of the peace talks towards thinking that uh, the U.S. government was very much against them. But yeah, the opposition always felt the opposite from the from the get-go as well. Alan, I'll just add, you know, this is where we see some distinction between the actions and the rhetoric. Uh, and the U.S. rhetoric pretty quickly turned um, towards condemnatory language towards President Kiir and towards Riek Mashar, as it well should have. Uh, but I'm not sure that the actions actually... Um, paralleled the change in rhetoric because the actions on the Ugandan intervention, including on the arms embargo, you know, those still stayed uh, similar to as they might have been in the past, uh, whereas the rhetoric uh, turned in a different direction. And I think on the arms embargo, 
it's one that that looks you know especially kind of strange i think in retrospect what was what what was the thinking on that to 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 not try to stop the government from collecting uh high power capacity you know to to wage war early on in the conflict yeah there were a few different arguments going on one was that an arms embargo simply wouldn't be effective uh in the borders in south sudan and the region are so porous that lots of arms and particularly small weapons would have continued to flow uh and there's probably some credibility to that argument another one was that an arms embargo would disproportionately penalize the government forces uh as compared to riek mishar's forces uh because government forces may receive their arms through more official channels that are easier to shut down under an embargo uh, compared to a rebel group what what the the biggest flaw that i saw in the discussion at the time was that it didn't take into account the different purposes of an arms embargo. Uh and one purpose of an embargo is indeed to stop the flow of arms, which is vitally important. But another purpose of an arms embargo is as a signaling mechanism. And it's to say to the South Sudanese uh government and to the rebels and to the broader international community uh that this is an issue that we care deeply about uh and that we are quickly losing patience on. Uh and the app absence of that signaling the absence of saying that we are willing to take the step of putting in place an embargo uh i think that was an unfortunate signal uh again especially to president's kier forces to keep doing what they were doing one question i have about that early situation is as the peace talks progressed and it became harder and harder to get a peace deal do, do you think there was early leverage early on in the conflict that that was uh you know that was a missed opportunity because it, later on it became very difficult for you know regional leaders and and the US to feel like they they had ways of really pressuring Juba to accept a, a peace deal yeah and i think that when we look across conflicts in south sudan and across the world we see a lot of evidence that these things are easier to resolve early on compared to later because later things metastasize and you start to see the splits within groups and then you're not just dealing with two protagonists you're dealing with a half dozen or more um so yes i think a very firm uh intervention not just from the us but from the broader international community and especially from the region uh early on would have had a better chance of success um then the same kind of push even later uh also because as a conflict like this goes on the grievances mount and mount and mount uh and they spread out geographically as well and more parts of the country get drawn in and it just makes it all the much more difficult to to fix things yeah and of course all of this looks a lot clearer in in hindsight which is something you you've pointed out as well and and now that is you know i i appreciate you raising that cuz it is worth emphasizing that you know hindsight is 2020 as they say and and one of the reasons i wanted to have this discussion and we'll get to more of this uh later near the end of this podcast but of course is because with the biden administration coming in we might see you know renewed us efforts on on south sudan and and we might see many of these same debates sort of coming up so i think it's it's interesting to look back at what was tried and in some ways these debates end up being kind of circular at times so along those lines i'm wondering you know did did president obama from what you saw ever seriously try to push the two leaders out of power was that you know it's still something that occasionally you hear people talk about now was that something that was considered being pursued or was pursued uh, seriously before this this 2015 peace deal the conversations that i had after the obama administration 
were a bit murky on that. I think there was discussion of that option, uh, but whether it was really, whether there was really a serious push for it at some point, I think is a little unclear. And I tend to think that that was never really a, a core policy goal. I think it's something that uh, the U.S. and others would would have liked to see and probably would still like to see. And, and I think we should get to some of that conversation. But I never saw the international community unite behind that objective. And it would be one thing for the U.S. to want that objective. But I think everybody in the U.S. acknowledged that in order to really make progress on that objective, that would have to be a broadly shared objective, uh, especially with regional countries. Uh, and that's where having that conversation is the most difficult. Yeah, and I think that's something we've stressed a lot um, at Crisis Group too, is how much the region uh, is often the ones holding the cards. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is, is hardly alone as a as a major actor. Um, it, in this early period of the war, I'd say, you know, prior to uh, the first peace deal, do you think the U.S. was finding that it had less power than it might have thought or that others expected it to have, you know, given given what a heavy role it played in in actually brokering South Sudan's independence and then and then really being its prime backer early on. And and this was one of the real debates within the US government and one of the points that I cite in this report that I wrote is there were these really divergent views of how much leverage we had. Uh, and there was this one strand of thinking that particularly goes back to the CPA negotiations and the robust role of the U.S. there uh, that says that that deal never would have happened and South Sudan never would have had its independence had the U.S. not pushed that deal through. Uh, and so, of course, we have leverage and, of course, we have an ability to influence outcomes. Uh, and there was another strand of thinking that said, actually, we are quite limited in what we can do here. And they are now an independent country and they're going to do what they do and we can affect things to a certain degree, uh, but only to that degree. And there were lots of gradations of views in between. Um, you know, another angle of that too is the question of how useful, how influential a lot of the personal relationships that U.S. diplomats had were with uh, the key actors in South Sudan and how much leverage those relationships provided. Uh, and there too, there were really different views of thought because those, some of those relationships went back a long way. Uh, and some senior people in the U.S. government were able to talk to senior people in Juba pretty easily. Uh, but whether that translated into actual leverage, uh, that was a point of disagreement, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, so sometimes I wonder if, if some of the debate on where the U.S. went wrong in South Sudan well, it's difficult to, to track actual U.S. policy in some ways because it goes from a period in which the U.S. was really, you know, sort of at a peak in terms of, you know, its influence around the globe to to a steady waning. There's still not necessarily consensus on sort of how much power, you know, even people in Washington think uh, the U.S. still has out in these regions and how much they should be letting sort of the region lead versus the U.S. still taking a big step in. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you have alongside that uh, an increasing uh, assertiveness among many countries in Africa to be resolving these problems directly, as, as they should be in many instances. You know, that increasing assertiveness, uh, coupled with, at times, the waning U.S. influence that you're talking about, uh, and just bigger geopolitical shifts that are going on. Uh, and so I think that does explain part of why there were so many different views as to how could the U.S. really expect to affect outcomes on the ground. I want to talk about uh, a couple other um, incidents before we get to sort of the modern day. 
eventually the regional mediators and the U.S. and, and others, they managed to get this peace deal in August 2015. At this point, it was still something that was relatively imposed. Eventually, the U.S. and others started really pressuring Riyak Machar to return to Juba. Uh, he, he eventually flew in with over a thousand of his bodyguards. Um, and this peace deal collapsed, you know, after after less than three months. It involved Riyak Machar basically getting chased across the country and into Congo. And this was another major crossroads because at the time it could have been possible to sort of pressure both sides to return to the to the peace deal. Uh, but instead, there was a U.S. endorsement that Salva Kiir could replace Riyak Machar as, as vice president. And then Riyak Machar was essentially sent into house arrest in, in South Africa. And the crux of all this is that Riyak Machar's fighters mostly stayed loyal to him. So you had the peace deal basically uh, existing in theory, but in practice, you had the rebel leader who was supposed to be vice president now in exile and his fighters still fighting on. And that sort of closed the the, the Obama administration chapter on South Sudan. Um, and it took a while into the Trump administration before those, before Riyak Machar was brought back to those talks and they continued. So I know you were with Secretary of State John Kerry when when in 2016, after this initial collapse, that he endorsed replacing Riyak Machar as vice president and essentially setting this this peace deal in a different track. Can you explain what was really the, the thinking as you understand it at the time for that approach? I mean, so, so I think that it was, you know, the mistake that the U.S. made at the time was thinking that there was a possible path forward without Riyak Machar entirely. Uh, because for as guilty as Riek Machar is of many things, and as much blood as he has on his hands, uh, at the time he had a real constituency that couldn't be easily uh, adopted by somebody else. And it certainly couldn't have been adopted by uh, Taban Deng in the way that uh, some people sought to support. Uh, Taban Deng had uh, very little constituency of his own and a mixed reputation at best amongst many South Sudanese. Uh, and so any effort to, uh, to get behind the government in trying to make that switch uh, was never going to work uh, and was in fact going to inflame the situation much more. And I think that's what we saw. Um, you know, I think the policy at the time also played into some of what we talked about earlier in the US, whether intentionally or not, really coming down on the side of Salva Kiir. Uh, and, you know, let's keep in mind that, as you were saying, when Riek Machar was forced out of Juba, uh, there was an aggressive effort to pursue him. Uh, and he was still uh, a signatory to a peace agreement uh, and part of the transitional government. And that, uh, you know, to me was completely unacceptable on the part of Juba, and, and I think there probably could have been more international condemnation of that effort. Uh, and of course, as Riek went through the Equatorias to try to escape, that brought that entire region of the country uh, more deeply into the war, which had not been the case previously, and the cost of that is still being paid today. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the history that'll be written about this, um, you know, will really highlight how much the war actually spread after that decision and sort of the overall costs of of letting this this first peace deal collapse. You know, there was such an effort to get Riyak back to Juba to really start the peace agreement. And of course, this was repeated again a few years later. And on the one hand, that's understandable. Nothing can really move until that happened. But on the other hand, I think that 
once again emphasizes one of the cardinal rules of peacemaking is that we on the outside, we peacemakers coming in from afar, can't want it more than the protagonists. Uh, and I think you're seeing several instances here of the outside world wanting peace more than Salvaki or Riek Mishar. Uh, and that's a really difficult equation to square. Um, certainly the vast majority of South Sudanese want peace, uh, but when the leaders are a little bit more indifferent to it, uh, that makes the peacemaking challenge all the more difficult. I'm just wondering, on that reflection, you know, what, what are your thoughts about what really were, you know, U.S. options, regional options, given that situation, given the fact that, that in many ways the, the people pushing for peace were on the outside? I would have liked to see uh, more serious regional consideration of a path forward without the two protagonists, uh, Selva and Riak, because so much of it became to so much of it came to revolve around them, um, and so much of it got caught up in their personalities and their personal ambitions. Uh, and I would have liked to see the regional powers uh, engage in a more serious consideration of a scenario in which they are no longer uh, part of the equation. Now, simply taking two men out of the equation, if that's even possible, is perhaps only the beginning of a solution. It's not a solution into itself. Uh, and I think the next part of that is how do you make for a uh, more stable transition process and some sort of interim process uh, that seeks to elevate people who have not been tied up in so much of the violence uh, and who probably have not been tied up in the, uh, the liberation history of the country uh, and seek to reset in some ways under some degree of, uh, of their leadership during an interim period. Uh, but again, a lot of the leadership on that kind of thing would have had to come from the region uh, and that's something that uh, didn't seem forthcoming at the time. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, the counter-argument on a lot of that ends up being, you know, there's really no good way to impose justice and peace on elites from the outside, even if even if that outside is the region, and starts to near um, uncomfortably close to almost regime change type of, type of policies, um, if it involves somehow moving on without without the people who actually hold power, you know, which which opens its own set of uh, problems that the the U.S. has explored in depth in other countries as well. Yeah, it does for sure. And, you know, the last thing the U.S. needed at the time then or needs now is to be seen as leading some sort of regime change effort, um, which is, again, why so much um, of the leadership on that kind of issue would have needed to come from the region. Um, but I think, you know, there could have been an argument made that uh, some of the leaders at the time were successful in bringing South Sudan to independence. Uh, and they can go down in history uh, as have been some of the founders of the nation. Uh, but now that you're into this new period, perhaps it's time for a new leadership and a new generation of leadership. Because I think another lesson that we bring from this is that so many of the skills that were useful to some of those leaders uh, in mounting an insurgency uh, and in bringing South Sudan through the interim period and getting them to the referendum and independence, those are not the same skill sets as running a country. Uh, and I think there were and continue to be many South Sudanese who do have skill sets that are better suited to running a country. Uh, and it would be nice to see them have an opportunity to lead. So just one more question on the 2015 peace deal. 
you know, Riek Machar has has now returned to Juba and has been there since February on the basis of a new peace deal. Uh, one of the things that we've highlighted as crisis group that's different this time from last time is that, you know, he didn't return to Juba this time officially with with over a thousand of his own armed forces like he did in, in, in 2016, which is which is partly or largely what led to the clashes that then led to that collapse. Do you think amid all these bigger questions, there's also sometimes just smaller questions in terms of details that maybe the first peace deal, you know, where it failed, it failed maybe on security um, questions rather than on these bigger political questions? Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. And, you know, our minds and the news coverage uh, automatically go to those big existential political questions but a lot of it is down to the details and a lot of it is down to execution. Um, and I know that U.S. diplomats and many other diplomats worked tirelessly around that time uh, to negotiate with REAC and, and President Kier in terms of what uh, troops REAC could bring into the country. Um, and, you know, eventually they found a solution uh, back in 2015. But a lot of that did depend on the details. And, you know, you could say the same sort of thing in terms of how the government was being run and who was running the ministry and just the pure execution of government function. Um, You know, a lot of those details really do matter uh, in terms of whether it's going to succeed or fail. Um, And those do get lost sort of amidst the, the grand politics that we all like to talk about so much. So so I'm among those who think that, you know, the problems for South Sudan date back quite a bit further. Um, and I think we could, you know, look at the comprehensive peace agreement in 2005, namely giving the SPLM, you know, sort of monopoly of power in the South, um, despite its deep divisions, and then putting forth a roadmap to secession without many guardrails or without much of a, you know, state building or nation building plan there. First, in your own opinion, and then Washington more generally. Do, do you think there's, you know, a view that this was primarily just failed political leadership at the top in 2013 in South Sudan? Or do you think there's uh, some willingness to, to look back further and, and question, perhaps heretically, given what a big success story it was for the Bush administration to end this big civil war, but to look back at maybe origins, you know, dating back to really the founding of South Sudan and and how that was done and its road to independence and maybe looking back further there to look at where some of the current problems lie. I absolutely agree that you have to look well before what happened in 2013 to Uh, understand the genesis of some of the problems that we see now. Uh, And I think your analysis um, of some of the failures of the CPA is uh, is spot on. And I've written about some of those things in the report and and others have written eloquently about that as well. I'll add another point, which is that, you know, there, there was a degree of nation building built into the CPA, but I think that piece of the CPA pretty quickly got shoved aside in the actual implementation of the agreement. And the agreement pretty quickly got boiled down into a timeline of getting to the referendum and getting to uh, independence if that was the outcome of the referendum. And that was an agenda that was largely pushed by then Southern Sudan and its leaders. Uh, And I think their push on that agenda was largely effective and they made it very clear that uh, especially after the death of John Garang, that um, they were going to move very quickly towards the referendum, and they were pretty clear on what the outcome of that referendum was going to be. Um, and so there were aspects of the CPA that 
if implemented and if they had been a focus both domestically and internationally, could have done more on nation building and building strong institutions. So before we start looking ahead at a Biden administration, um, you know, looking all the way back at the totality of, of U.S. policy on South Sudan being a big backer and a big broker of the of the CPA and, you know, eventually of South Sudan's independence. And then it's it's really brutal collapse afterwards and everything that's that's followed. Do you have any big sort of top line takeaways, you know, a story of of hubris or folly or of waning power? Um, or, or do you just see sort of a series of unfortunate events? Do you see sort of big top line lessons based off of, you know, what looks like a policy failure in South Sudan? Well, I'd, I'd start by just saying that for as much as we focus on the outside engagement, um, and we should, what happened in South Sudan was fundamentally the product of developments within South Sudan and decisions by uh, political elites uh, that led to the, the situation that we see now. Um, now, that said, you know, I, I do take away a few lessons for the international community, including for the U.S. Um, I think the main one being that we just always have to question our assumptions uh, and we always have to try to take a step back and, and ask ourselves, are these things that we take to be true indeed really truthful? Um, and, you know, the, the piece of that that really resonates with me in South Sudan is there was for so long this sort of good guy, bad guy narrative going on. And that sounds simplistic, but at times it was almost that simplistic in terms of South Sudan uh, being in the right here uh, versus uh, the horrible regime, the genocidal regime in Khartoum at the time, uh, who clearly um, was a, a bad actor on the international stage. Um, but you had this real sort of good-bad dichotomy uh, that papered over a lot of very complex issues that really came to the fore uh, once independence happened. Uh, and those are the kind of assumptions that we really do need to force ourselves to question uh, constantly. So, so those are your lessons. Um, now a different question. I'm wondering what lessons you think, you know, Washington, to, to sort of generalize uh, you know what? What lessons you think the the Washington African you know establishment has has drawn from the South Sudan experience? I think a good deal of humility will come out of the experience, um, and that's not just a product of uh, what happened in South Sudan, but I think a product of of situations elsewhere, including beyond Africa and general global trends, and including what's happening domestically in the U.S. these last few years. Um, and I think we will probably be more restrained in some ambitions uh, as a product of this. You know, so crisis group, you know, very much stresses, uh, as you have, you know, South Sudanese are, are ultimately going to be the ones who who bring peace to their country. Um, and then outside of them, you know, this really does need to be a, a crisis in which the region um, and South Sudan's neighbors and regional powers really lead on. I think the Obama administration, you know, especially early on, felt a lot of responsibility towards South Sudan, given the given the history of the U.S. in the young country. Trump really didn't. Do you think this new incoming Biden administration, you know, will uh, feel that sense of responsibility? Or do you think they, they, they might take the more withdrawn approach that the the Trump administration ended up taking? 
I would suspect it'll be somewhere in between. I think the days of the CPA and the strong U.S. leadership role and the leadership role of the Troika with the U.S. alongside the U.K. and Norway, uh, those days are getting pretty far into the past now. Um, and so I don't think you're going to see that level of ownership that you probably saw particularly early on in the Obama administration. Um, but I think that as the new team within the Biden administration scans the continent uh, and asks where the U.S. can be most impactful and where the greatest challenges lie, then South Sudan is going to be pretty close to the top. I think the other side of that question is what, what options does the new team see and what chances of success do they see? Uh, and I think that's going to influence how much diplomatic capital is put into something like this. I think in terms of humanitarian response and saving lives, uh, South Sudan will remain towards the top of the agenda the way it has for years. Uh, and the U.S. has put billions of dollars uh, into humanitarian assistance over the years uh, that has been very, very effective for the most part. Um, you know, I think the elections that are now called for in a few years in South Sudan, uh, which if they're on time, would happen during the first term of a new Biden administration. That's going to be a really potentially pivotal moment for uh, South Sudan if something resembling free and fair elections can happen. Uh, and so I think the new Biden administration is probably going to ask themselves, you know, is this a process that we can believe in, that we can legitimately support, that we can invest in, uh, and that we think is going to be really meaningful for South Sudan? All right. And that leads me to to sort of a final question, which is on this this issue of of U.S. humanitarian support. Um, you know, the U.S. has always been a, a major donor, like you said, has spent billions. You hear sometimes some, you know, some saying that, you know, U.S. assistance itself should be used as leverage and sort of pointing out that in some ways it, it, it starts to look absurd if donors from outside continue basically paying for what in, a, in other countries would be government services, you know, basic health care, even just keeping people fed, doing that indefinitely while essentially the, the, the country's own leaders sort of squabble over the country's actual resources and that that situation, you know, looks unsustainable. Do you think it's possible to have a situation where the U.S. spends so much humanitarian wise um, on a country, yet politically ends up being not nearly as engaged or not nearly as big a player? Do you think eventually sort of that has to even out one way or the other, either the humanitarian support goes down and the or the political engagement goes up or is or is this something where we can really see both humanitarian and political sort of diverge for so long yeah it's a vexing problem that you're pointing out and i'll add that an additional aspect of the problem is if humanitarian support allows a country to divert resources from services to its population towards buying guns fighting a war uh, all of those things that are so destructive um, I don't think that it's a simple trade-off between humanitarian support versus political capital. I think both of those things can move in the same direction. Um, I think it would be awfully difficult for the U.S. to substantially reduce humanitarian support because the impact would be brutal. And, you know, now we're reading in the news about uh, possible famine level conditions in some part of South Sudan. Um, but at the same time, you never want humanitarian support to be treated as some sort of 
expectation in a country and you don't want a country's leadership to not feel a responsibility to provide services to their own population because they assume, oh, the U.S. or somebody else is going to do that. Uh, and so what I think we need to look for is ways to uh, for South Sudanese people and to support South Sudanese people to compel their government uh, to provide those services that are so desperately needed. And you need that kind of a feedback loop where uh, if government is not provided providing those services and the people are able to respond accordingly. And so often that means through elections, which is why those elections coming up are so important. Uh, but we should not allow the kind of situation South Sudan is in now to you know, move towards anything that is seen as permanent because it's obviously a deeply unhealthy dynamic going on. It's a probably a necessary one right now with the humanitarian support because saving lives is paramount. Uh, but it's not one that anyone wants to be permanent. All right, John, we'll, we'll end it there. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We're going on a quick holiday break, and we will be back in early January. In the meantime, you can find more of Crisis Group's work on our website, crisisgroup.org. Have a great December. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode was produced, as always, by Mae Francis. <laughs>